The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter. What are we going to do today? Well, a lot of you seem to have enjoyed this show that I did about a word that I'll just describe as being spelled F-U-C-K. Along those lines, I thought we might look at a few other bad words and some of the things that they can teach us because a lot of the bad words have stories to tell us that are both educational and entertaining. I never cease to be amazed at the delights that you find in just looking up the etymology of some of the words that many of us use more than we might like to admit. You know what one of those words is that has an interesting etymology? Darn, of all things. Not damn, but darn, the word that we use when we want to avoid saying damn. And it's not the same word as darn as in darning socks. It has a completely different story that does not get talked about enough. It's an interesting story in that it shows you all sorts of things that you might learn about in an introduction to linguistics class. You've got euphemization, erosion, sound change, blending, analogy, devernacularization, all of those things happening to create this spicy little word, darn. Believe it or not, darn begins not you know, as some Latin word darnus or something like that, but with an expression, by the eternal. This is an expression that starts popping up in the literature, in particular in the early 1800s. And by the eternal was a euphemization. By that, I mean that you said by the eternal when what you really meant was by the eternal damnation. But there was a time when even damn and hell were considered genuinely bad words, when our taboos about cursing were more about religion than the body. And so there were people who felt it improper to say damnation because that's about damning someone to hell and the idea is that that's God's business and not ours. So instead of saying by the eternal damnation, you might say by the eternal. Now, there's a lot of that kind of euphemization in how we curse. There always has been. For example, jeepers, to the extent that anybody actually ever said it, that was a way of not saying Jesus. Or gosh is a way of not saying God. Heck is a way of not saying hell. And zounds, that actually started as by his wounds, the wounds in question being Jesus Christ's wounds at the relevant time, by his wounds. And so you would swear by, for example, Jesus's wounds. That was considered a dirty and improper thing to do, to swear by, for example, Jesus's wounds. The idea was that you are dividing Jesus into parts by saying by his wounds in that way. So one way of euphemizing it was just to say zounds. Of course, at this time, wound was still pronounced wound, just like the past tense of wind as in wind your watches. So zounds starts as by his wounds. That was a way of saying that. So in the same way, by the eternal damnation. Instead, if you had at least some semblance of class, you might say by the eternal. Or for example, somebody might say by Jupiter. And that was a way of not saying by God. In the same way, by the eternal is a way of saying by the eternal damnation. And so darn starts with a euphemization like that. And you know, on the topic of by Jupiter, since we haven't 
had any music yet. That was the name of a musical in 1943. Um, it was about cross-dressing to an extent, and it would still be running now. It was very popular, but its star was Ray Bolger, who was familiar to us as the Scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz film, and he decided to go into the army, and so it closed. My favorite song from By Jupiter, in any case, is a pleasantly angry little number called Everything I've Got. And this is Richard Rogers and Lorenz's Heart Song. This is from the 1967 revival. This is Jackie Alloway and Bob Dishy singing Everything I've Got, except I think you're only going to hear Jackie Alloway. I have eyes for you to give you dirty looks. I have words that do not come from children's books. I have a terrible tongue, a temper for two. Everything I've got belongs to you I've a powerful anesthesia in my fist And the perfect wrist to give your neck a twist There are hammerlock holes, I've mastered a few And everything I've got belongs to you Share for share, share alike You get struck each time I strike You for me, me for me I'll give you plenty of nothing Here's one marriage vow that I'll reverse I will not be yours for better but for worse I can hit the bullseye I mean with my shoe And everything I've got belongs to you So, by the eternal... But, you know, in this thing called language, things have a way of getting shorter. So if people are saying by the eternal a lot, you just know that after a while you're going to be able to just say eternal. And everybody knows the full expression, but often people just said eternal. Apparently, by the eternal and eternal were favorite expressions of Andrew Jackson. So if you want to have some live sense of what Andrew Jackson was like, apparently he liked to say eternal. And I, I can just tell that his voice sounded kind of like that. So you have this shortening. Now, that kind of shortening, which one can call erosion, remember, as I've said before, that is in all of how language changes. Because if it were all about erosion, then what I would be doing right now would be just laying on the ground, you know, gargling with my tongue, hanging out. There would be no language if everything just kept getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Things are always adding on, too. So, for example, the suffix li that we use for adverbs, that began as a separate word that meant, of all things, body. And then it ended up glomming onto words and becoming a suffix. So there are always things building while all of this erosion is happening. There are two concomitant processes, nevertheless, by the eternal. You know, if people are going to say it a lot, especially when they're angry and you don't have time to be precise, people are going to start saying eternal. And that's what happened with by the eternal. Very similar to, for example, how we got by. You know, when you tell somebody, bye-bye, what, what are you saying? What is it? What bye? It doesn't have anything to do with any bye that you can think of. And you know it's short for goodbye, but what's a goodbye? Is there, is there a bad bye? What in the world does goodbye mean? We don't have time to think about it. Eternal. But where it comes from is God be with you. God be with you. God be you. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. You can still see it spelled as if it's God be with you in some Shakespeare folios. And so if you say God be with you a lot, and there are people who are inclined to, pretty soon you're just saying goodbye, and then that just has to shorten to bye. That is one of the ways that we get words. Words trace back to things you would never think of. So bye traces back to God be with you. And here we have by the eternal becoming eternal. And then eternal is going to undergo more 
change. For example, just sound change. Often in English, an urn becomes an arn. So, for example, you might learn something, but then kind of ding, 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 learn people who might say that, or you know, same thing. Ding, 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 ding. Doesn't that sound kind of like a banjo? In any case, that's the musical background. There are people who don't say ornery; they say ornery. I've heard it. They were from Texas, and so learn, larn, ornery, ornery, eternal. Well, you just know that there are going to be certain people who say eternal. And that's exactly what happened. And so many people in the 1800s, they didn't say by the eternal, nor did they say eternal. They said tarnal. That's how it was said. So already, if you only hear tarnal, you might not have a sense that what people are saying actually traces back to by the eternal damnation. And there's, you know, tarnal being thrown all over the place. You see it in cartoons from the era. Then fun stuff really started to happen. So tarnal. Now, if you have any idea that it's connected to damnation, and there were people who did, it was in the air, and you said "tarnal" in the same kinds of circumstances that you often might also say "damn," depending on your mood and who you were around. Well, if you know that there's this word "damnation," and you're saying "tarnal." Well, then, in your brain, you might suppose that there could be, or maybe that there is, and pretty soon there is a word "tarnation." So there is this damnation, you know, you're kind of saying it, and then there's this tarnal. Okay, well, what about tarnation? And it's modeled on damnation. So you get a blend of tarnal and damnation. That's blending. And blending has a way of creating words too. Breakfast and lunch becomes brunch. Lunch and dinner does not become dinch, but you kind of wish that it did. There was no word in Old English flush. There was no like flush or something like that. Flush happened when flash combined with gush. If you think about it, like flash flood, shouldn't it be flush flood? There used to only be flash. Flash and gush come together and create what happens in the toilet. Or twirl is twist and whirl. Twirl isn't an original word. It's twisting and whirling together, and it actually is, and that's where the word comes from. So, tarnation, people would say, and we're even aware of that one. If you want to sound like an old gold prospector, you probably will pop up with a tarnation. That was a combination of this tarnal and damnation. And so, that's how these things go. And now I'm thinking about twisting, and so we have to have. The Washington Twist. This is from Irving Berlin's last show. It was unfortunate. It was called Mr. President. You can imagine what it was about. It did not last, but my favorite number from it is his attempt to get hip in 1962 with the Washington Twist. Not a great song. Savor the arrangement. It's amazing what orchestrators could do with these songs. Washington Twist, sung by Anita Gillette. <laughs> Doing the Washington twist. This is a twist with a twist. He was beguiled with the president's child. I was always the first on his list. Now he begins getting in with the end, which is part of the Washington twist. Gentlemen loaded with charm, seemingly meaning no harm. But while they're there, you'll be Quietly twisting your arm Drinking a toast to the host with the most Which is part of the Washington twist (laughs) 
If you're saying tarnation, and you know that there is that other word, damnation, and in your brain on a shelf somewhere, you know that damnation also comes out as damn, that damnation is a word that starts with damn. Well, that means that if you're going to go by analogy, like a standardized test, then if there's tarnation, then damn, damnation, tarn, tarnation, or even darn. You're going to feel like there's a word darn, and it's based on analogy from damnation. So if you have damn and damnation and then tarnation sitting there, well, you want to fill in a tarn, and you're probably going to make it darn because you know that what you're really trying to say is damn anyway. So that's the process of analogy working its ways. And it happens all the time. One of my favorite examples is actually, I don't know why I'm using all these rural things, but for example, somebody saying yorn or hisn. Well, that's based on an analogy with mine. So my book is mine, your book is yorn, and his book is hisn. That's kind of the way it should go if all the ducks are going to be in a row. That's how analogy works. Darn came from analogy from damnation. And then finally, you had devernacularization. Darn starts with a certain air of the rustic about it. It seems to be mostly men and you know they're probably smoking some sort of cigarette or cigar and it's west of the Mississippi and there are things going on involving steer, you know, whatever steer are. That's darn at first. But nowadays darn is something that, you know, the people on Friends or 30 something, what a dated reference that is. Or um <laughs> the Gilmore girls I, I give up. Anyway, darn is something that all sorts of people say, all sorts of genders, all sorts of orientations to the Mississippi River. It's just kind of there. It's like, darn, sweetie. That's not how darn felt 150 years ago, but it does today. It's become devernacularized. And actually, an example that I'm thinking of here is like veggie. You know that twee term for vegetable? It used to be that veggie was something you said to children, Roughly, it was this kind of cute little thing that you said when probably a lot of grown-ups weren't listening that you said to kids like eat your veggies, you know, learn to pretend that you like broccoli, eat your veggies. Now, veggie is becoming just a word. So, for example, veggie burger. I don't know anybody who calls it mm, a vegetable burger. Nobody has ever called it that. You have to call it a veggie burger, even if you don't like calling vegetables veggies. And I've had people say with a straight face, oh, I always like to eat my veggies. Just a very ordinary thing. In my experience, it's usually women, but still, it's no longer a baby word in any sense. You know, I had never had, uh, there are two things I've never done, except now there's only one. Never been to a rock concert. Never been in a stadium and, you know, had a lighter up, anything like that. I don't know that I ever will go. It's just not something I do. Haven't skied, but I frankly don't understand why anybody would ski. But the third thing that I hadn't done until last week, I had never had a veggie burger. And I... <laughs> Goodness, never will again. Tarnation. Franklin D. Roosevelt probably never had pizza. Think about it. Imagine him sitting there in the wheelchair eating a slice of pizza. You know he didn't have pizza. It wasn't popular really in the United States beyond Italians until the 50s. And FDR wasn't Italian. And you can just tell. Picture him sitting there with pizza. It didn't happen. George Washington didn't know what darn meant. If you had said darn around him, he would have thought about socks or thought you were speaking Frisian or what have you. And that's because darn developed from by the eternal of all things, that word that we use. That's the first curse word etymology that I wanted to share because it's one of my favorites. Now, let's go to hell. 
Let's think about, and there's going to be a relationship, you'll see, the word even. By even, I don't mean flat, and I don't mean the opposite of odd. I mean that little word even, where you'd be hard-pressed to explain to somebody what it means. And so horses run even faster. Or I would even play the maid. What does even mean there? And don't, don't say emphasis because, no, you're not saying I would play the maid. That's not what I would even play the maid means. It's not I would play the maid, not the butler. That's not what you mean. I would play the maid. That's not what you mean. Even is a very subtle thing. It's called a scalar particle, if you wanted to know. And what even means is that there is an implied hierarchy of cases of increasing interestingness, sadness, happiness, somethingness. And even indicates that you would go even beyond those other things. So for example, you would happily play the lead in the play. You would happily be the co-star. You would happily be just the comic relief and walk on and slip on a banana peel or something. Or you would even just play the maid who probably doesn't have any lines. That's what even means. It implies this scale in the background. And the funny thing is that hell has become a scalar particle. That is the one time anybody's ever going to say that sentence. And this is what I mean. What's hell? Well, it begins as a bad word. And you see books where it's written H dash dash dash, or you know, they can't write it at all. I remember I asked my father once, sometime during Watergate or something, I had noticed that on the page, there's this word D-A-M-N. Now, I was quite familiar with damn because my parents said it all the time, often to me. But then I would see this word, D-A-M-N, and I thought that was different. I thought there was this word, damn And so one day I walked into the kitchen and I asked my father, Dad, what's damn And he said, well, that's something that you say when you're very, very angry. And for about the next three years, I thought damn was something that you just said all the time. And then damn was something somebody would say if they got really, really mad. And I kept waiting for somebody to say damn but it seemed like they always said damn, frankly, or shit or something else. And gradually I realized, wait a minute, it's a silent N. Because, of course, nobody tells you about those things in school. In any case, hell used to be a word that you said when you were very, very angry. You would tell somebody to go to hell, for example. Well, that's cursing because, you know, who are you to consign somebody to the other place? That's God's job. Well, as time goes by, just saying hell by itself becomes a kind of a shorthand of indicating anger. It's how you break things somewhat. That's how you let off a bit of steam because it's a bad word. And so you'll just say hell. So it becomes a very right brain kind of thing. It's a yelp. It's like what seals do. It's like, that's my version of a seal. Hell becomes that kind of curse word. It just kind of jumps out. Noel Coward put in a cute hell in one of his cabaret songs. This is called Imagine the Duchess's Feelings. I just like it. And it's Bobby Short singing. Very, 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 very kind of song. And so just listen to him. And I'm playing it nominally because I like the way Coward situates the word hell, but also just because it's cute song. The Duchess had manner for dignity lurks in the shadow of Debrett. But fate threw a spanner smack into the works, tarnishing her coronet. 
three large sons were born to her, but once had mourned to her, there came a horrid moment of regret. Said the Duchess, well, something doesn't gel. Said the Duchess, well, hell. Imagine the Duchess's feelings when she had hatched out her brood to find her first son was weak though well-mannered. Second, rather stupid, and her third, plain rude. Her eldest son, when in trouble, went white. Her second soon looked blue and hung his head. But imagine the Duchess' feelings when her youngest son went red. After a while, the joke gets old. All jokes do. And curses get old. Its force weakens. And so you say, hell, say that 200 years ago, and there are people who would kick you out of the drawing room. But nowadays... We have to wrap our heads around the idea that hell is actually profane. And it gets to the point where it's no longer breaking a rule. It's just kind of insouciant. It's just something that indicates that you don't need to bother. That's a weak form of the original word. And so you're kind of saying to hell with the proprieties by saying hell. So next thing you know, you might say something like not just I'd even play the maid. You might say hell, I'd even play the maid. As in, you know, I don't care whether I'm the lead or the co-star or the person who gets the pie in the face. Hell, I'd even play the maid. Okay, but in hell, I'd even play the maid. I think about 300 listeners know what the next song is going to be right now, but no, we'll get to it. In any case, you say, hell, I'd even play the maid, but it's redundant because the even conveys this idea that there's something extreme, that there's this implied hierarchy and you're giving the top of it. And then hell is doing the same thing. And to tell you the truth, if you say, hell, I even play the maid, the hell pops more. And so pretty soon you start leaving out the even. And so you can say, hell, I'd play the maid, which means the same thing as hell, I'd even play the maid. But if you say, hell, I'd play the maid, then that means that the word hell has gone from referring to the fiery pits, you know, the red and the devil laughing, etc., to being a scalar particle like even. Hell means even. Who'd have thunk it? You, know, you, you didn't get taught that in grammar school, but that is how language works, um, especially because theater director extraordinaire Harold Prince has left us. It's time to play something from Follies. And a lot of my listeners know that I'm going to play a bit from Broadway Baby. The actual line is, heck, I'd even play the maid. But you take the point. This is Elaine Stritch doing it deathlessly at the 1985 concert at Lincoln Center. I like to be on some marquee. All twinkling lights, a spark to pierce the dark from Battery Park to Washington Heights. Someday, maybe, all my dreams will be repaid. Heck, I'd even play the maid. To be in a show. And finally, this I just think is humorous. I've been wanting to get this in for about a year, and it's time for me to just throw it in. Let's do a little bit about shit. And I just want to share this with you. Gender neutral pronouns. We're talking about that a lot these days, and the idea is that 
We use they. I think we need to get used to using they. And we seem to be, especially over the past 10 years. You could do a whole book about they. Somebody, I think, actually is about to contract to write one after he finishes about 17 other books. The he is, is me. You could do a whole book about they. But the fact is, many people have tried to create gender-neutral pronouns. And it's, it's a nice, if quixotic, effort. And so there are people who've suggested things like heesh. It's like he and she together. And of course, there's the Z that some people are promulgating these days. And, you know, there was one suggestion, and I'm pretty sure that this was tug-in-cheek, but somebody suggested after Proposition 11 in California back in the 70s, which proposed that the government use gender-neutral language, there was somebody who suggested in an editorial that you combine she, he, and it into one pronoun, shit. I kid you not. The idea being that you would just say shit instead of specifying the gender. That's a little obnoxious, but you must admit that whoever that was was pretty clever. Almost as clever was somebody who was thinking about he or she and it and suggesting around the same time that we might combine he or she and it and you get horseshit. (laughs) (laughs) That was actually what this person suggested. Horse shit. Where does shit come from? I mean, the word. Well, Old English had a word skeeton. You could just call it skeet because that ending, you know, was ripe for falling off. But skeeton. Now, in Old English, the word for ship was skeep. Or the word for shear, like shearing off wool or something like that, was skeeron. So what is now sh was sk in Old English. And, you know, for example, a skiff as a different word for some kind of ship that I have no idea. What we now have as sh was often sk in the earliest Old English. And at some point, nobody's actually quite sure when, people start pronouncing sk as sh. Okay, fine. But that means that the sk was the original state and Old English is the earliest English. And of course, there was language before Old English. And when Old English was just that language spoken in Ukraine that I'm always talking about, Proto-Indo-European, we can know from Old English and lots and lots of other languages of Europe and Asia that the original word was ske. And ske meant roughly to cut. Now, that ske, as it goes down into Old English, becomes, for one thing, something like skiton, and that's the word for shit. In Latin, one of the things that that became was skire, and skire means to know in Latin. Now, that word skire ended up becoming the word for science. The idea here being that knowledge is about cutting things up. So you have this root, ske, it means to cut. It goes down into Latin as knowing, and knowing is about cutting things up in order to understand them. So science is cutting things up. Now, that ske then goes into Old English as skiton, and what that meant was to cut, as in to cut something off. So I'm sorry to be so graphic, but that is where the word for S-H-I-T comes from. The idea is that you are... There are expressions that make it even clearer what that meaning is that I'm going to spare all of us. But the idea is kind of snip, snip. And so what that means is that in a way, science is a kind of shittance. It's like shittance. That's what it is. So the relations between words are always interesting. And that is true of shit 
as in various other things. On that subject, I mean, this is a very direct transition. I want you to hear something from the Wizard of Oz film that tends to kind of go by very quickly when you're watching it. You know how when they get up from the poppy field and they're about to go to Oz and there's that weird three-part harmony song on the soundtrack about we're out of the woods? That song is called Optimistic Voices and there is more of it than you hear in the film. And this is stereo. This is ancient stereo. This is a very rare recording of that song done in 1939's version of stereo. You will only hear this here or on the internet. You get to hear the whole song and it's in stereo. And this is people who you know still are suffering from polio. But optimistic voices here in stereo. Listen to stereo of our great grandparents. These are only some of the fun etymologies that one can find when one's digging around profanity. And of course, I'm doing this partly because I'm right now writing nine nasty words, which is going to be about the dirtiest words in our language and where they come from and what's fun about them. Don't worry, that is not the subtitle. But I just wanted to share with you some of the sorts of things that have been delighting me lately. And there's another one actually. There's a book that you all have to read. I mean, please just go, go get it now. You don't have to drop anything because you can just you know, keep listening to this on your device and, you know, Amazon, bookstore, preferably the latter. Go get A Death in the Rainforest, How a Language and a Way of Life Came to an End in Papua New Guinea. This is quite simply the best book about language death and one of the best books about the encounter of an indigenous culture with the West that I have ever read in my life. It's by Don Kulik, and it really ought to be read by a great many people. It's the sort of book that it might be easy to lose nowadays when, you know, every second book has to be about Donald Trump and then the other books are self-help of some kind. This book will not teach you about the idiot. This book will not teach you how to exfoliate. It will just teach you about one of the most interesting and tragic and sometimes touching cases of cultural encounter I have ever seen. I don't know Don Kulik. I'm not being paid to say this. I was absolutely struck by this book. And you'll learn a lot about language too. And he's a very good linguistics teacher. By the way, I remember back in the late 70s, I was in a geometry class and I had this very, very funny friend. And we learned about acute angles. And he <laughs> whispered in my ear, uh, ugly. And I almost fell out of my chair, like cute, <laughs> ugly. There's a linguistics lesson in that. It's the whole etymology of the word cute. Do you ever wonder where it came from? Well, I'm not going to tell you here. You have to get Slate 
Plus. That's where I talk about it. And for a nominal fee, you get to listen to both this and other Slate podcasts without having to listen to me or anybody else do any commercials. And then you get these extra little bits, such as a cute, a ugly. That's this episode, but only if you get Slate Plus. Let's go out on some police. You wouldn't know how much I like them from how little I've played them, if at all, on this show. This is Da Do Da Da. I found this song very arousing for some reason when it came out. I, it's, I've kind of lost that feeling, but it's a very catchy song, very good writing. It's one of those things where you have to think, would you have thought of the way they come up with this song, that, that strange, you know, insistent twang on the guitar, that line? This is very important music. I never quite liked Sting Alone as much as the five wonderful police albums. I know I'm wrong about that, but sorry. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. The horses of a different color in A Wizard of Oz. You've often heard that that was jello powder that they used, or at least I have often heard it. It turns out not to be true. It's been actually discovered that they didn't use jello. I always wondered. They used the food coloring that is used to make jello different colors. So I just wanted to put that in there. The horses of a different color do not have jello on them of any flavor, including peach. Had to get it in. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor. And I am John McWhorter.